welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 37. I'm Nick Dixon, and I'm joined by ubiquitous free speech activist Toby Young. Coming up, the Libs freak out about NatCon, Musk hires a new CEO, and Donald Trump releases his new comedy special, plus loads more, and of course, Pete Woke. But Toby, I thought we could start with NatCon, which is freaking out the Libs on Twitter. So we went to NatCon. I think I'm allowed to say that. I'm never allowed to, I'm sure what I'm allowed to say these days. I think we went to NatCon, quite a big event run by James Orr. At, and there was an event at the Natural History Museum. Douglas Murray did a speech, which is now getting attacked on Twitter. And Suella Bravman's being attacked for saying something about immigration. And people are basically pretending this is a big fascist far-right event, even though actually I believe it was founded by Jewish people, which is a bit of a curveball. It's quite, quite, I mean, that is one of the far-right conspiracies that everything's f- founded by Jewish people. And, but yet people are calling it a far-right event. And Mr. Murray's getting some flack on Twitter because of this this uh, segment from his speech where he said, I see no reason why every other country in the world should be prevented from feeling pride in itself because the Germans mucked up twice in a century. So he, he's saying that why should we ditch all nationalism just because Germany got it wrong a couple of times? But any thoughts on NatCon, Toby? Yeah, well, I, I didn't manage to attend day one of the conference. Um, and apparently there were some some great speakers, Catherine Burble Singh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Suella Braverman. Um, and um, it was, I think Jacobs was the first speech. He gave the first speech at 9am and it was almost immediately interrupted by an XR protester who seemingly was quite polite and respectful, kind of ambled up onto the stage, kind of gently wrested the microphone from Jacob and then said, I, I, don't, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but you are all fascists and this man's a fascist. It was kind of a very polite sort of protest and he was then politely ushered off the stage, but then there were, there were other protests um, throughout the day, I think. Uh, but it, it, it is odd, as you say, there is this kind of fixation uh, on the part of the liberal media who are there in force to portray this particular conference, this three-day conference, as a kind of far-right fascistic conference and leaping on any evidence they could find that, you know, this was this was a sinister lurch to the right by British conservatives, having been kind of tempted down this sinister dark path by American right-wingers. But as you say, it's quite hard to portray it as anti-Semitic because one of the leading lights behind it, if not the leading light, is Yoram Hazoni, who is a professor of political science at an Israeli university and has written a book called National Conservatism and is the thinker, the intellectual most closely associated with the national conservatist conservatism movement. So Douglas Murray's comment, yeah, I heard him make it and he was sort of praising nationalism. And he's been criticised on three counts, I guess. The first is that um, he's just simply underestimated the dangers of nationalism and conflated it with patriotism. Nothing wrong with patriotism, but nationalism is something that should be avoided at all costs. So that's one criticism. He's banging the drum for nationalism, and we all know where that leads. The second criticism is that he said, you know, I don't see why we shouldn't be able to express our love for our country because nationalism's got such a bad name. People have pointed out that actually there is quite a lot of patriotism still in Britain, and people point to the celebrations surrounding the coronation of King Charles last weekend as an, as evidence that there is plenty of patriotic feeling in this country. So what's he talking about? And, and then the third and most damning criticism is that um, by saying, I don't see why nationalism should be permanently banned 
just because he didn't say, I'm paraphrasing, just because Germany mucked up twice in one century. And he's been accused of belittling the Holocaust by um, using the term, the words mucked up to describe the sins of Germany, not just the First World War and the Second World War, but also the Holocaust. But I think he was using, I mean, it seemed obvious to me that he was using ironic understatement when he used the phrase mucked up. And he was intending to get a laugh. And the line did get a laugh. The point of ironic understatement is you're making it clear that actually what happened was far more egregious than the words you're using. And you're deliberately using understatement in order to kind of bring home just how egregious the events were. It's a typical example, I think, of the kind of left turning a deaf ear to irony, taking something completely literally, and then damning the person who's used the words. I can't imagine it'll do him any harm. And I can't imagine he'll even bother to respond. Maybe he has already, but um, it seems such a weak point to make, given that he was so obviously using ironic understatement. I mean, what was your take? Absolutely. And he's developed this sort of uh, language style as he gradually evolves into William F. Buckley. And it's just part of his style. The Germans mucked it up a couple of times. And we're supposed to understand that that is understatement. And we did get a laugh, as you say. And absolutely. And People, you know, someone has said here, get, and I cannot say this with enough vigor, effed, there's only one way to oppose this kind of fascism. And then Carl Benjamin actually replied to this guy, and he, he was attacking Douglas Murray, and said, hey, like, hey, Alex, I'm having trouble identifying the fascism in Douglas's statement here. Are you capable of showing how this connects to the theoretical structure laid out by fascist thinkers? Feel free to use Gentile, Sorrel, Proudhon, whoever you think best. And Carl's just out, out person who's read books, him there. He's like, who, who, which fascist thinkers does this align with? And of course, yeah, it's just, you know, they're just responding to the vague, what they see as the vague optics of an event called NatCon with, you know, various sort of conservative speakers. It's all fairly predictable. Um, it is an interesting, I don't fully understand where NatCon comes from. I later realized, I thought it was just sort of general conservatism, but it is, it is, does seem to be an American, specific American founded uh, movement with, with a certain specific ideology that I don't totally understand yet. But like you say, it is rooted in, um, there's a Jewish person that's come up with it. Um, just on Murray's speech, it was good. I've heard him say it a couple of times now, but he said that, what what would we be thinking about if these bollards hadn't been placed in our way by the left? So he was saying, the good question is, what would we be thinking about? What would we be doing if we weren't constantly fighting these ridiculous wars to prove that men and women are different or not everything's racist? And he also said that, one problem with conservatism is that it's conserving different things everywhere, which I thought was really interesting. Different conservatives in different countries are conserving different things, and we don't have a obviously a sort of monolithic ideology like the the left that has an, the same answer everywhere. Universalist ideology that has the same answer for everything everywhere, and that's obviously one weakness. And he said, but he said one way we could fight some of the weapons of the left, which are things like resentment, envy, all these things they have on their side. A so, so-called social justice, and he sort of was alluding to Scruton, who sort of set, pretty much thought that social justice was rooted in envy. Um, he said one way we could fight it, it was is love, another is gratitude, another is aspiration. So it's not particularly fascist, is it? Love, gratitude, and aspiration. No. Yeah, and I thought the note he ended on, he he quoted Elon Musk, and he said someone had asked Elon Musk in an interview, you know, what gets what what gets you up in the morning, and Elon Musk said going to Mars. And Douglas described that as a very good answer. He said that, you know, we're too easily sucked into these culture wars. And a lot of our time 
is taken up, particularly the younger generation, in fighting the culture wars. And it's just a huge distraction. Why are we giving these destructive, envious, resentful social justice warriors the time of day? Why don't we just ignore them and focus on actually making the world a better place and trying to achieve something and leave something behind the people that come after us can celebrate. He ended on this great quote from C.S. Lewis, from seemingly a sermon that C.S. Lewis gave in Oxford in the 1940s, in which C.S. Lewis pointed out that, um, that mankind always creates things even in adverse conditions. So even when, you know, your priority should be feeding yourself and your family. You can't help but try and write poetry or come up with new mathematical theories. And, you know, this is, it's just our nature. So he was sort of prompting us to take heed of C.S. Lewis's sermon, ignore the distractions of the culture war and get on with creating something worthwhile and something worth celebrating, something worth preserving for future generations. I thought that was a good argument. I hadn't really thought about um, how best to kind of tackle the scourge of kind of wokest day in that way before. And I thought it was quite an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, it comes from C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. Favorable conditions never come. Exactly. We have to we have to rise up to our sort of greatest aspirations, even in times of great adversity, because that's how the times always are. It's in the movie Shadowlands, I believe. So was, that's where I recognize it from. So it was interesting to hear him hear him say it, well, it was very very good very powerful quote at the risk of being a pen i do think it's slightly different the musk quote was actually why do you want to go to mars and musk replied well you've got to have a reason to get up in the morning so again it's a kind of comic understatement right. from musk very much uh, as uh, murray also uses mm. so yeah but it's yeah, pretty similar um anything else you want to say on that con toby well i suppose there's an irony here in that all the lefties who've been desperately combing through all the speeches given at NatCon, looking for evidence of, you know, uh, a shift to the right amongst British conservatives or evidence of fascism. They're partly objecting to importing polarised American politics into the UK. I think it was it was described by one critic as, you know, the kind of intellectual version of the Tea Party movement. And this was a kind of reprehensible attempt to export the Tea Party movement to the UK. And it's like, well, if you dislike the polarized politics that characterize the national conversation in America, news and current affairs in America, if you if you find that abhorrent and celebrate the fact that we our politics is slightly less polarized and the two sides are still able to talk to each other in a fairly good-humoured and respectful way, at least some of the time, why do you then engage in these the, the, this kind of vituperative caricature of your opponents in a way which seems to be taking a leaf directly out of the book of democratic activists in the United States. So, you know, either you want our politics to be less polarised and you don't want us to import that particular um, virus from the United States, or you do, in which case, you know, of course you're going to behave like this and mischaracterize netcom but yeah it just seemed a little bit hypocritical and contradictory yeah i mean yeah if the, if the wokes are um, importing everything from the u.s maybe we have to import the antidote from the u.s weight of glory apparently was 1941 i thought murray said 39 but i don't know if, he, if it, may, it might have been said at various times before it was published because lewis did a lot of those sermons at that time should we move on to uh, our next story but let's do this story about um calvin 
and the old Ian Rons at the Daily Skeptic. So you, you published a piece from Ian Rons, very, very critical of Calvin Robinson, who then had a bit of a pop back on Twitter. And I wanted to explain to him that actually some of the tweets that you tweet are actually just based on the extract from the Daily Skeptic. They're not really you saying it. They're just the extract being published from the Daily Skeptic, which is written by someone else. But I thought, why why wade in and get yourself in yet more beef, Snick? Let, let's hope we handle this one. But basically, Ian was criticizing Calvin's monologue about the Ukraine war. There was a few things he was annoyed about. Some of them were the fact that he used the term the Ukraine, which he said was it's Ukraine. We've all agreed that now. And apparently the etymology of that goes back to the Soviet era. So it's a Soviet term. So he said, oh, you're hardly owning the libs by using that. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a Soviet term. He also said it's a bit like Kiev and Kiev, and we should all say Kiev now. I think Ian's on less solid ground there because who really cares about saying Kiev? You know, I think that's kind of sort of PC nonsense. Uh, so I, I still say Kiev personally. He implies it's naive to call for peace because the only terms, I'm quoting now, the only terms that the Ukrainian people are willing to accept are that the aggressor, Russia, leave their sovereign territory. Whereas Calvin was going for more of the Trumpian thing, like, hey, let's just end this, you know, dying on both sides. Trump said he could end it in 24 hours, whereas Ian's implying that's naive. But um, I, I don't know where you stand. I feel people are a bit too hawkish on Ukraine. I feel they're just sort of like, this is a war they can get into. And I'm more of the opinion that it is very complicated and I would prefer, maybe it is naive, I would prefer peace. It's not that I'm sort of like, oh, Putin's got a point or something, but I, you know, people, serious people like Hitchens do say that the work that we, we have unnecessarily provoked Russia over years. I don't think that's a totally outlandish, far-right thing to say. But anyway, Ian was pretty harsh against Calvin and he hit back and then you find yourself sitting with Calvin at NatCon. So <laughs> anything to add on that? Yes, Almost right next to him. Yeah, well, it was. Um, yeah, so we ran this piece in the Daily Skeptic by Ian Rons, um, and it was about a monologue Calvin had given on GB News, and the sort of thrust of the monologue was a plague on both their houses. Um, I'm not taking either side in this particular conflict, but I think it's about time they started negotiating for peace because otherwise the war will never end, and we might all get sucked into it, and it could go nuclear, the usual arguments for a peace settlement in Ukraine. Yeah, so Ian is a passionate supporter of the Ukrainian side and quite often writes pro-Ukrainian pieces for the Daily Skeptic. And we also have Noah Carl, not quite on the other side, but certainly much closer to Calvin in his position on the war in Ukraine. So there is no official editorial position of the Daily Skeptic. I feel more sympathetic to the Ukrainian side, but I don't impose that as an editorial line on the contributors to The Daily Skeptic. But it was quite a scathing piece about Calvin. Ian really let him have it because he thought he was being morally and intellectually lazy. The point about um, the Ukraine rather than Ukraine and Kiev rather than Kiev, both the Ukraine and Kiev are Russian words. So if you use those Russian words, that's effectively a way of signaling that you're more sympathetic to the Russian side than the Ukrainian side, even though that may not have been what um, Calvin had intended. But that's why Ian made that point. Calvin obviously didn't like it, and and it was sort of slightly perceived as friendly fire, uh, a bit like, I suppose, um, a kind of minor version of the storm surrounding Fraser Meyer's criticism of Andrew Bridgen. The reason that attracted so much attention in our world is because it was friendly fire. It was two parts of the anti-woke coalition seemingly turning on each other. I'm sure we can get on to talk about that. I mean, I, I, my defense of publishing that piece 
is that um, unlike the other side, um, I think that our side can accommodate internal criticism, internal debate. We, on the whole, don't go in for purity spirals in the same way the other side does. We don't excommunicate people for criticising you know, their comrades in arms. We are a bit more intellectually tolerant and we value debate and discussion in a way the other side don't. So I think a certain amount of internal argument is tolerable and actually preferable to, you know, this 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 fanatical holding of lines and this persecution, this cancelling of people who don't tow particular lines, which is a characteristic of the, you know, the authoritarian, intolerant new left. Um, so that's my defence of, of publishing the piece. And I've asked um, Calvin if um, he would like to write a reply, and I'm hoping I'll be able to persuade him to do that. In due course. Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree. I mean, I've started using the phrase purity police, which I think I've coined, which is the people nominally on our side who who are always attacking people for not following the most extreme possible line. And I've talked to Andrew Doyle about it on a forthcoming podcast on my other podcast, The Current Thing. It's a great, great episode. But um, so I agree on that. Although you could say, you know, Ian sort of started it by being very harsh. Indeed. Because, yeah, I mean, he, who's, he has started the friendly fire there. So we can be critical of each other and we should be and we shouldn't fall into purity spirals and dogma but at the same time it can be also ad hominems and kind of unnecessary aggression for someone who you particularly don't maybe you even have a particular dislike for them because they're on your side and you think they're sort of mucking things up for your side i mean i think uh, ian says in the piece that calvin's making christianity uncool again so he's kind of a bit annoyed with him so you know there is also decorum of how you attack your own side. I may have done this myself sometimes, been too scathing about people on our, on our own side. So that's the question, isn't it? You should be rigorous. You shouldn't, or you don't have to have one opinion. We, we don't have to have one monolithic opinion like the left, one uniform view. But at the same time, we could be, I suppose, uh, more decorous about it might be one way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, it's an interesting argument. Um, and at the Free Speech Union, when trying to devise... Um, a statement of values. This came up because we wanted to talk about what limits we'd place on free speech, who we wouldn't defend. And there was a discussion about whether we should say, you know, we will defend people who enter into debates, arguments in good faith, and to use your word, in a decorous manner. But we won't defend people who use ad hominem, sarcasm, vituperative put-downs, and the rest of it. Um, you know, where did we draw the line? And my argument against drawing the line uh, in the way you've just suggested is that often sarcasm, humour, taking the mickey out of someone, even, dare I say it, ad hominem attacks, although Ian disputes that he did engage in ad hominem attacks, I should say. Those, are, I think, are weapons in the arsenals of both sides in any debate. And to kind of prohibit their use would, I think, make public debate much less entertaining, much more boring. I mean, you know, I think a certain amount of, for want of a better word, malice in public debates, you know, of, of, of kind of personal animus is what kind of brings it all alive and makes it so engaging and entertaining and mesmerizing. So to say, you'll defend free speech, but you won't defend that seemed to me to be a mistake. We have to defend, you know, 
comedians like you who use comedy um, to um, attack their targets, as well as people like Douglas Murray, um, who generally rely on, you know, arguments, evidence, quotations, and the rest of it. Yeah, well, I've certainly attacked some people. I don't, I don't tend to name them. So I've attacked sort of ideas more scathingly or situations. But yeah, I suppose you're right, Toby. I suppose all bets are off. But I suppose inevitably, someone like Calvin in this situation will be upset still. I mean, because, just as Bridgen was upset by Fraser Miser's attack, which was probably more vicious. But I suppose we're always getting attacked so much by the other side. It's like, really, I have to deal with, with this now? You know, it's kind of why people like Andrew Dorr perhaps block people and everyone complains about it because you attack so much on Twitter. I'm attacked enough, so he's attacked like 10 times more. And then someone comments something a bit narky and a bit rude, and then they get blocked and they go, what, all I said was this. And it's like, yeah, imagine having a hundred of those you know, every day or more, it's just like you can you can understand why one gets sick of it, and you can understand why Calvin was a bit yeah, gutted. And yeah. but he falsely kind of anything he did, he said it was the FSU that had done it because of Ian's association with the FSU. Was really it was just the Daily Skeptic that had done it, and really it was just one person at the Daily Skeptic. Yes, yeah, it was just one writer's view in the Daily Skeptic. It wasn't even the view of the Daily Skeptic, <laughs> let alone the Free Speech Union. So um, yeah, no, and interestingly, um, uh, David Vance has weighed in and also accused the Free Speech Union of condemning Calvin for daring to challenge the kind of mainstream narrative on the Ukraine war. Um, so that was a bit of a shock. Yeah, um, what's funny is that, so, um, there we are. is that Noah and Ian violently disagree both at the Daily Skeptic. So it's not like, don't they, on the, on the war? Yeah, so it's they not do. like... Um, yeah. And yeah. obviously, and then you disagree with Will on lots of things, and I disagree with you and Will, and it's like we're all writing for the Daily Skeptic. So, and Will, and I mean, you're the what editor in chief, and Will's the editor, and you don't even agree on quite a lot. So, you know, it's not like it's a mm. one view allowed at the Daily Skeptic, you know, slash FSU, which is not related. So, I think that's, but you know, I suppose Calvin was just having a go back. Fair enough. Did, but did you patch it up with Calvin at the event? Well, I, we, I didn't. I wouldn't say we've fallen out over it. I was. Um, you know, I was I was trying to be as emollient as possible, and um, trying to persuade him to to write a reply, and offering to publish it. You know, unedited. Um, but uh, uh, he hasn't yet taken me up on that. But I hope he will. And just lastly, I don't see Calvin's use of the Ukraine or Kiev as as um, you know any sort of uh, advocating Putin or something. I see it purely as a rebellion against. Even despite the Soviet etymology or whatever, I see it as a rebellion just against the constant language policing by the current thing people. Like, we must now, you now we all say this, now we're all BLM, now we're all FBPE, and now, you know, it's just constant. I see it as that, and it might not be totally consistent, but I see it as just a rejection of that constant tinkering with what, you know, people like Hitchens are like, well, we've suddenly got to say, you know, Mumbai instead of Bombay, we were going to say, Beijing. Why do we have to say Beijing? We say Peking. You know what I mean? So quite a lot of people just don't like that, just on that basis. Yeah, no, and I can understand people um, balking at um, the policing of their language and wanting to kind of cock a snook at the language cops by deliberately using the words they're not supposed to use, although within reason. Um, by the way, on <laughs> that, a friend of mine whose wife works at a big NHS hospital um, received an official instruction from HR. Um, I think it was from HR at at the hospital, um, saying from now on we won't be using the term ethnic minority. From now on, the phrase we use is a member of the global south, 
Have, have you encountered this particular latest bit of language policing? I've heard global majority. I haven't heard global south. The global majority, that's exactly right. It, it Sometimes people urge you to say the global south as well. But yeah, um, and it's, it's odd, isn't it? Because part of the kind of um, virtuousness, the kind of sacred status of ethnic minorities is the fact that they are a, minor, a minority in a white majority country. Um, so to kind of rob them of that and actually give that instead to white people, and I suppose the implication is that we are the global minority. Um, uh, uh, white people are the global minority. It's almost as though they're giving those victim points, taking them away from ethnic minorities and giving them to us. So it's a slightly odd move but i guess there is some kind of rationale behind it but it escapes me i've always thought that i thought okay so you've admitted that we're in a very small minority globally so actually we are being oppressed and we should stop worrying about being the oppressor exactly it completely reveals that they haven't seemed to twig that yet it points out actually mm. sort of like white europeans whatever you want to say a, a tiny part of the globe and you know we, we need to be protected but they haven't they haven't figured that out maybe the kind of rationale is that um we are the oppressor but we're also the global minority. So on what possible basis can we be oppressing the majority? For democratic reasons, we ought to relinquish our property and power. Is that is that the argument? Something like could that. Could be. Whereas sort of the elite, but actually really there's not many of us. Yeah, it could be something like that. It's all nonsense. Did, did, did you see on a similar note that New York Times are saying some companies are now saying diversity and belonging instead of diversity and inclusion? Yes. Uh, and it, and it says uh, a changing terminology that reflects new thinking among some consultants who say traditional DEI strategies haven't worked out as planned. <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> you know, they'd be a complete failure everywhere. Another thing Murray raised in his speech, he's like, these ideas have been a complete failure everywhere they've been tried, and yet we're rolling them out everywhere. Yet they haven't worked mm. anywhere. I thought that was very powerful as well. Um, yes. Do you want to go on to Simon McDonald? This was an interesting story. Simon McDonald, who spent 40 years in the Foreign Office and was the head of the Foreign Office, I, I believe, he had this uh, piece in the New Statesman, End of the Game for Britain. And if you actually look into it's sort of an inflammatory headline. If you look into it, it's not... I couldn't read the whole thing because it was paywall, but I've read a sort of take on it that quotes it a lot. And he was basically saying that the UK is now mostly a soft power player and doesn't have the resources to back up the hard power game it's still trying to play. He's saying we, we couldn't do a Falklands war now. We only have uh, we have fewer than 40 warships when at the time we had 100 or almost 100. He says Britain's global decline has been both absolute and relative. India, China, Japan, Brazil, Australia, they all count for more than they did 20 years ago. So this is why he says we can still be a player, but a soft player. And, and he says um, he, he says even in the war in Ukraine, uh, it, it's more of a soft power Thing to draw other people's attention to something, to galvanize activity. And it's the end of the great game for Britain. And you sort of think it's like kind of annoying at first, like, okay, he's, he's only these managed decline people and he's cooking to China. But the more you look into it, it's, it's not necessarily that bad. He says things like the, the, the UK involvement in the Iraq war was pointless, saying, you know, people died for what purpose, which of course I was completely against it at the time and still am. And he says, that actually we need to stop trying. It's not the worst argument. And it kind of actually even reminded me of something that Carl Benjamin said on, on my other podcast when he, he sort of says that Britain is over as an empire. That's fine. We need to move on. It, it was never actually defeated, but it did fail. And now we need to move on and start thinking about something different and probably start thinking in terms of England, not Britain, because that's this, that's an outdated project. And the, the other thing that McDonald said just lastly is he said, when I started in 1981, your typical minister had served quite a long apprenticeship coming into cabinet with a lot of miles on the clock. Now you can be foreign secretary within a few years of entering parliament. 
And he said, Liz Truss spent a massive amount of time on our image. Her social media feeds were something that she curated all the time. So actually, Toby, I mean, when I passed the inflammatory sort of headline, is anything he's saying that bad? Well, if we park what he said about the future of Britain as a global power for a second, I thought the more egregious thing he did in that interview in The New Statesman was to more or less kind of maybe boasting's putting it too strongly, but kind of he seemed to be kind of reveling in the fact that he had been instrumental in the downfall of Boris Johnson because he knew that um, Boris had been informed of Chris Pincher's track record when he appointed him, I think, as a what as a junior foreign office minister. And Boris, when that scandal broke, instead of saying, yes, I was informed about this at the time, but I received official clearance from the cabinet office or from the permanent secretary in the foreign office to appoint him. Instead, he claimed that he didn't know about it. Typical Boris. And um, so Simon MacDonald made public the fact that Boris had, in fact, been told this prior to uh, Pincher's appointment. Um, Hence Boris's nickname for him, Pincher by name, Pincher by nature. Anyway, drawing attention in the interview to the fact that he had been instrumental in Boris's downfall when he is supposed to be a politically impartial civil servant. That was, I thought, that was that was probably worse than his declinism about Britain, although it did feel at times as though he was kind of, you know, saying, let's just hoist the Chinese flag above the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, um, because we really are finished as a global power, and we should stop pretending it's all just vainglorious nonsense. Let's accept that we're a very minor player, perhaps with a little bit of soft power, but not much of that either. I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating slightly, but it did seem pretty defeatist um, and very reminiscent, actually, of the attitude that characterised Britain in the 1970s. And it took Margaret Thatcher to convince us that actually there was a bit of lead left in our pencil. We weren't quite finished, as everyone imagined. And, you know, I don't know if this is still true, but I remember during the Brexit debate, you know, pointing out that um, what Britain was the fifth largest economy in the world, the third largest uh, had the third largest, uh, it was the third largest military power. That may, longer, may, may no longer be true. I was disappointed that the most senior official in the Foreign Office, which is, you know, partly there to project British power around the world, um, uh, was being quite so defeatist about our future role in the world as a global power. Um, but then there's a, there's another wrinkle to this story, Nick, which is that the reason he gave the interview to the New Statesman is because he's got a book to sell. And um, the um, Mail ran a story a few days ago, um, headlined, Blundering Blob, former top civil servant who helped bring down Boris Johnson is slated for outing the son of a prominent Tory MP as an MI6 spy. So in this book, um, in his memoirs, he talks about how um, the son of a cabinet minister, now ex-cabinet minister, uh, was in fact an MI6 agent and names the agent in question, which the male haven't done in their story. And typically when you know um, a senior official publishes a book, they run it past the um, cabinet office first for approval, precisely so mistakes like this don't happen. And, and he apparently didn't. 
So it seems a bit much for him to, you know, haul Boris over the over the coals for, for a bit of um, impropriety when he himself is also guilty of impropriety. And the upshot is that no more hardback copies of this book in which he has named this MI6 agent are going to be published. And um, it looks as though um, the name will be redacted from the paperback uh, when it comes out. But um, pretty shocking um, that uh, not only is he uh, proud of his role in bringing down Boris, a bit of a defeatist when it comes to British global power, but also um, doxed um, a member of the security services, which, you know, the most senior official in the Foreign Office should not be doing. Interesting. You've always got the, uh, they've got a book out angle, Toby. You always know more about these things than me. And you always got the most <laughs> cynical take, which turns out to be right, that they've inevitably got a book coming out. Um, so look, well, maybe you're right. Maybe as a wrong, and I mean, maybe I was too generous. Um, it, it's, it's one of these, the symptoms he identifies, you know, are not necessarily wrong. And anyone who's sort of against the sort of neo-lib approach could agree with him, for example, you know, that we shouldn't be doing all kinds of, you know, invasive foreign wars that are unnecessary and expansionist wars is probably what I meant to say that are unnecessary, and we could actually agree on that. But perhaps, perhaps it's yeah, perhaps the defeatist tone. Perhaps we could, and I think many on the right would agree our military is a mess. But I suppose the solution might differ. We would say perhaps rebuild the military, whereas he's saying so it's over. Let's not even have a military. So perhaps, perhaps I'm sympathising with the the problems he identifies, but not the solutions, because yeah. his solution perhaps is too defeatist and cucked. Yeah, I suppose if if you do care about Britain's global power um, and you want to see Britain be less defeatist, um, then uh, part of your case could be um, that we've allowed our military to fall into a pretty parlous state by not spending enough money uh, on it. I mean, one of the points he makes in his interview with the New Statesman is that um, the British Navy is roughly 40% of the size it was during the Falklands crisis. And if the Argentines invaded the Falklands today, he thinks it's very unlikely that we could send a task force to reclaim them because we just we just don't have the, you know, um, the, the ships anymore. I can see how it could feed into a kind of conservative narrative about the neglect of various kind of key assets of, of, of Britain. Yes. So yeah, I'll forgive you for, for, for liking him for that reason. All right. Do you want to do the first of our adverts, Toby? Yes. So let's hear from the Live-In Care Company. Are you worried about parents or a loved one who are finding it more and more difficult to take care of themselves or who may be living with a condition such as dementia or Parkinson's? Are you starting to think about a residential care home, but the very thought doesn't sit right? At the Live-In Care Company, we truly believe that home is the best place to receive care from an expert carer of your choice and on a one-to-one basis. Home is always a calmer, more healthy, and a happier place to be. For more information about Live-In Care, please go to the Live-In Care Company, or one word, the liveincarecompany.co.uk, or you can ring them for a no-obligation conversation on 0118-914-5300. That's 0118-914-5300, and they'll be happy to help. All right. Well, should we now go into our American section, tentatively titled Across the Pond or Pond Life? We can't agree on a title, can we? Pond Life, you said Pond I think, Scum. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to withdraw, withdraw Pond Scum. I think that was, I mean, I, 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 I have nothing but love for our American cousins, so I didn't mean to imply that. I, I'm looking down my nose at them. God forbid. So yeah, let's just call it. Need to die with pond, pond life. life. Pond life. But we need a good yeah. title for it. 
unless we just go to it without a title, we could just do that. That's always always an option. Uh, just across the um, pond, I think, rather than pond life, let alone pond scum. Yeah. Well, our first American story is the Trump Town Hall. So I'm sure many of you would have seen this. CNN really messed up here. They accidentally did a comedy special for Trump. And basically, it's, it's like a Netflix special produced by CNN because Trump was just looking amazing and hilarious. He was smashing it on all levels. They said, oh, you didn't condemn the Jan 6 people. He goes, well, I just happened to have it here. And he pulled out all his tweets out of his pocket and he had receipts, as they say. And there's this crowd of like, young Republicans just cheering him on. And he was just absolutely on form. We haven't seen anything like it since 2016. And there was this ridiculously hilarious moment where he was talking about this woman, E. Jean Carroll, whatever she is. That how you say it? And she was a... Uh, She's accused him of all sorts of sexual assault things. He says he couldn't have possibly have done. He he talks through what, how she's saying it happened. They met in this department store. They were instantly attracted. And he, he points out the absurdity of the whole story. And there was a great moment where he also said, and her dog or her cat was named Vagina. And he says Vagina in the most ridiculous way that no humans ever said it. And you're like, he's done it again. He's made vagina the funniest word ever by just saying it but he sounded like Stephen Hawking he was like vagina <laughs> who says it like that so that was a great moment and it was just Trump being absolutely hilarious and he just won the moment by just being so funny and brilliant and a couple of de- deranged lefties tried to shout me down about it on GB but they were completely wrong anyway and, and it was all based around this uh, E. Jean Carroll who had accused him of all kinds of things in a department store w- w- any take on this Toby? Um yeah, no, I, I didn't. I mean, I watched a few um, clips. I didn't watch the um, whole thing. But uh, yeah, it was a vintage Trump performance. And um, he's very good, isn't he, at kind of projecting kind of macho power um, in a way that plays well, not just in the TV studio, but in the kind of um, social media clips afterwards. And um, this interviewer, um Caitlin Collins was kind of gamely trying to to pin him down, confront him with some facts, call him out on previous things he said, which may not be entirely true, hold him to account for his complicity in the um, uh, the attempted coup, whatever it was. Um, but yeah, he was just he was just kind of bulldozing her, steamrollering her. Um, and uh, uh, and just generally being very effective, playing to his base. I mean, and CNN was subsequently criticised for giving him this platform, for giving his campaign a boost. I still think that um, for Biden, the best case scenario is for the Republican nominee to be Trump, because I don't think, I'm not sure he can actually beat Biden. Um, I think he can certainly galvanise his base, get them to come out to vote for him, but I don't know if he can do any better than he did um, in 2020. Um, it doesn't feel to me as though he can. And the polls, you know, depends which polls you look at, but the polls suggest in a Trump-Biden runoff, Biden would probably squeak to victory. Um, so I think that, you know, we celebrate these things. We think it's hilarious. But actually, the loser here um, uh, is not Joe Biden. It's Ron DeSantis, who I think would be a stronger candidate and could actually beat Biden. Um, so, um, yeah, um, lots of fun. Um, uh, but but was it an own goal? You know, was CNN, did it really shoot itself in the foot if the upshot is that it just consolidates Trump's front-runner status? Maybe not. Mm, the 4D chess angle. Well, certainly Anderson Cooper was worried about about it, and it, but he managed, he addressed that. All the libs freaked out. We shouldn't have even platformed this. And, blah, blah, blah. and Anderson Cooper addressed it in this weird monologue where he, which, which actually Douglas Murray praised, 
But Cooper wouldn't even say the Trump's name. It was really weird. He kept saying this person, you know, we gave him a platform. He said this. He did terrible thing, and he he, he won't say his names out the whole thing as if he's gonna like you know Candyman or whatever it is. He, yeah, he just <laughs> he'll just suddenly appear in the room and say vagina <laughs> if you say his name three times in front of the mirror. But um. It was so weird, but but he is he was at least addressing it and saying, "Look, these are your friends and family, and these these are millions and millions of Americans. It's half the country, so we have to reckon with it." It's like, yeah, you just noticed that, have you? Um, and yeah, and he called Caitlin Collins a nasty woman, which was you know funny, and um, and he was still stuck with the twenty twenty was rigged thing, which some people have criticised. I disagree with you slightly about well, pretty significantly about the. Uh, Polls. I mean, I saw, I haven't got it in front of me now, annoyingly, but there was a WASHPO ABC poll, very lefty, and it, it basically said Biden was losing on pretty much all metrics. His approval rating was the worst it's ever been, lower than the previous low, which I think was Feb 22. And he, I believe from memory, it was 44% said they'd vote Trump, 37% Biden. DeSantis also beat him, but by a less wide margin. So they had a t- poll Amongst, you know, Washington Post poll and Biden just getting spanked on all metrics. They're saying he's too old. He's not mentally sharp. He's not going to win. So I disagree that Trump, I think Trump will. I, I think the same as I've always said, Trump would beat Biden and will beat Biden if the Republicans can get on top of the cutting edge election campaigning techniques, which is what I call it, which is like whatever it's, whether it's ballot harvesting, whether it's mail in ballots. If they can compete on the, you know, if they can have a fair, I don't want to say a fair, there's a fair election, yes, but if they can also compete on the sort of allowed but dodgy techniques that, mm. that go on, then uh, then I think Trump wins. I don't see how Biden beats him in a in a fair contest. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the there's a there's a a Wikipedia page which um, uh, aggregates all the most recent polls and it's frequently updated, and the latest um, aggregate of all the polls show that in a Trump Biden runoff it would uh, it would be 43.5% to Biden and 44.2% to Trump so Trump has a lead of 0.7% i think that's pretty soft um and Joe Biden Ron DeSantis neck and neck on 42.7% so that's a tie um but uh yeah, um, uh, Kamala Harris uh, v. Donald Trump. Donald Trump wins quite comfortably, but I don't suppose that'll be the contest. One worry I have about um, Trump winning, Nick, is that it feels to me um, that uh, you know we've 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 reached peak woke. You know, the, the pendulum has swung um, as far as it's it, it's reached its apex, and it's now beginning to swing back the other way, but only just beginning. Um, but in, you know, you can point to various indicators which suggest that at least as far as the zeitgeist is concerned, wokeism is beginning to lose some of its luster. It's no longer the current thing. It's kind of yesterday's thing. Um, and um, the claim that they're on the right side of history is a hard one to sustain because even if you just suffer one reversal, such as, you know, the um, resignation of Nicola Sturgeon caught up in the gender recognition reform brouhaha. Even if they suffer one reversal, then it begins to look as though they're not on the right side of history. History is not always going to make sure they they win. Um, so um, I think it's beginning to look quite fragile, beginning to fracture. And the trouble is that um, just as Trump kind of electrified 
um, the woke movement, the social justice movement, the successor ideology um, back in 2016. Um, So, if he was re-elected in 2024, just when the great awakening is beginning to fade, it might act as a kind of, you know, defibrillator, applying the paddles to the kind of dying corpse of the woke movement. And it would come kind of roaring back to life like Freddy Krueger, very mixing my metaphors there. But, you know, so, so that's one worry <laughs> that uh, it, it would just it would just be like a kind of replay of the years 2016 to 2020, which were some of the most acrimonious and polarized in, you know, American history, Uh, but worse, it would be kind of even worse, because it would be like woke 2.0, a kind of zombie corpse-like version of the woke menace, which would be even more scary. Interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll address that in a sec. Just on the polls, I found it, it was on Politico, I was 1% off, 38% said they would definitely vote or probably vote for Biden, 44 for Trump, 37, 42, Biden, DeSantis. So DeSantis also won. And shockingly, um, only 32% said they believe Biden has the mental sharpness it takes to serve effectively as president. 63% did not. And, you know, even Democrats in this poll don't really believe in Biden. Everyone everyone says he's too old, but a lot of them said that both were too old. Most people said uh, both Biden and Trump were too old. But yeah, it, only 28% said neither's too old for another four years. So yeah, it was a pretty bleak poll for everyone, but particularly for Biden. On your other point, Toby, very interesting. Will will Trump suddenly reanimate the corpse of woke? Well, I noticed woke is is covering its tracks a little bit, even in that thing with in, diversity, inclusion, diversity and belonging. I think what they're doing is my sort of, I haven't thought about it that much, but my little take here is that they are shape-shifting again a little bit to try and get wokeness across They'll continue in the institutions to do woke things, but they might foreground it less because the optics are so bad. What do you think to that? Yeah, that's um, you mean if if um, if Trump isn't the next president of the United States. Oh, I mean, in general, actually, I mean, in general, that's going on anyway, that the wokeness, but whether it'll come back with Trump, I should address that quickly. Will it come back if Trump gets in? Hmm. I don't think so, really. I think there'll just be a war on Trump and it'll be more lawfare and Trump's the worst person ever. I don't know if the, the, the wokeness will come back with a vengeance. I just think wokeness now will shift its optics slightly, mm. but but it will definitely use everything it can to hit Trump, but I don't think it'll bring back some extra yeah. level of wokeness. I, I, don't, I mean, I, 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 I don't think that um, woke is about to disappear overnight, for sure. Um, you know, it's uh, if, if, we, if we pinpoint its beginnings to around 2013 which seems to be the general consensus then we're we're now 10 years in so if it's peaking now then you know it'll probably fade if it is going to fade and it isn't reanimated by trump over the next 10 years or so so we've still got a fairly long haul um and also as you say um even if it's true that the the general public um when it's voting with its wallets um or, or in election booths um is becoming gradually less enamoured by woke if it is losing that kind of sense of inevitability, which is one of its kind of most powerful kind of arguments in its favour. Nonetheless, the armies of the woke have made such headway in our institutions. There's still going to be a long afterlife of um, the greater wokening, long after it's kind of ceased to, to be fashionable and ceased to kind of win over younger generations. I mean, one one argument that um, people like Eric Kaufman make, that it's uh, naive to be optimistic about the 
decline of woke is that younger generations, according to most metrics, are woker than older generations. So, you know, um, uh, Gen Z, uh, that little bit woker than millennials and the generation coming up behind them, uh, what do you call them, digital natives, seem even woker than Gen Z. Um, uh, but I think that that, that, that that argument depends upon just polling you know, young people in Britain and America. And if you look at other Europe, if you look at, if you look at continental Europe, actually quite a lot of young people are shifting to the right, particularly in France, but not just in France. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily a reason to be too pessimistic. Okay. Well, Eric's a very interesting guy. I had a very interesting conversation with him the other night. Unfortunately, I can't remember any of it, but I do remember talking to him and thinking Eric's very interesting. Um, so, on this thing about how woke could end, you just reminded me, I was speaking to Andrew Doyle on my podcast, The Current Thing, forthcoming episode. He, of course, talked in his book, and he mentioned it. I, I thought it was a bit of a spoiler, but he brought it up about the Ipswich Bridge moment. If you've read Andrew's book, he talks about the Salem witch trials and how it very quickly ended because these these girls that were there to sort of identify witches, if one came past, they would convulse and so on. They tried doing it again on this Ipswich Bridge, but they're just ignored and everyone sort of realizes that that is just a party trick and they don't believe it anymore. So it suddenly has no power and suddenly falls apart. So he talks about that and he has this brilliant phrase. I can't find it. Something like the lacunae of hope or something. He, he, he talks about this way it could suddenly fall apart. Of course, he doesn't know if it will. This is a, this is just his hope that it could suddenly evaporate like that. So there, there is always that chance that, you know, as he says in the book, that, that this is a, this is a sort of Salem witch trials moment. No one really believes in it. They're in a kind of hysteria. And as soon as people just stop pretending, it could suddenly end like that. So that's a more positive yeah. take on it. Yeah, and I, think, and I think even if you don't think that um, people are going to stop cancelling each other or their efforts to cancel people are going to be less successful, the very fact that so many people have been cancelled um, robs being cancelled of some of its stigma. You know, it's almost as though you could paraphrase Andy Warhol and say, in the future, everyone will be cancelled for 15 minutes. Um, given just the vast numbers now of people who've been cancelled, you know, it's almost a badge of honour, isn't it? I mean, for you and I, it's a badge of honour. And increasingly, I think it's a badge of honour for people. The fact that they'd rather overuse that weapon has made that weapon less effective. Yeah, absolutely. And Andrew also says that in his book, New Puritans, that, yeah, there's so many people have, have, have come across to our side. So, yeah, some some possible hope there. Um, I wish I could find that quote, but never mind. Do you want to go on to our next story about the Daniel Penny arrest? Yes. So uh, Daniel Penny, we've covered it before, but, the, but since then he's been arrested and he, of course, uh, choked um, Jordan Neely on the subway who was being very threatening. And now he's actually been arrested for it. And I believe he's potentially faces 15 years for second degree manslaughter, last I checked. And I put a tweet out about it. I said the treatment of Daniel Penny is a catastrophic low for America. You can't have a functioning society praising madness, chaos, and random violence whilst punishing honor, selflessness, and strength. And I added, I added as well, it's also perhaps the final assault on the very role of a man, yet predatory men prosper, a truly broken culture. So my point was if you can't protect people as a man who are, who are under threat as a former Marine, then what can you do? With the left has very much spun this. I mean, and there's a legal side of what counts as manslaughter to, we could discuss. But then there's the, the way the left have spun it. People like AOC is, 
you know, Jordan Neely's the hero and Penny's the evil one. But you can't have a society like that because that's not the case. That's a kind of Joker, Batman villain culture of total inversion where the the criminal is always the hero. And you just can't, it goes so against our, our instincts and what is true and right. And I think that this is proved by the fact that he's raised so much or so much has been raised for him, Penny, in this uh, give, send, go campaign. So last I checked, which was today, he, he'd raised $2.4 million. And people like Kid Rock gave 5000 Tim Pool 20000 Vivek Ramaswamy $10,000. And by contrast, Jordan E has raised some, but it was 130000 last I checked. So what I say is the people giving this much to, to Daniel Penny show that actually people know he is in the right. People instinctively say this guy has been treated unfairly. If you can't protect vulnerable people on the subway, what can you do? And by the way, it came out that Neely was shouting, I don't mind going to jail and getting life in prison. I'm ready to die. So he was like shouting wild things while being, and we know he had that family charge for assaulting an old woman. We know all these accounts that he was completely out of control, going back as far as 10 years from people posting online saying, avoid this guy on the subway. So he was a troubled person, arrested 44 times and so on. And obviously, Penny didn't mean to kill him. He was just protecting people. So if you can't, if you can't, if you can't do that anymore, how can you have a society? And some people said to me, well, it's not American, Nick. It's just New York. And there is that. It, it's the, the left-wing Democrat-led uh, states in America just collapsing into anarchy. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, no, I take your point. I think that, um, you know, people often complain when um, uh, someone is attacked in broad daylight on a busy street, you know, a vulnerable person, a woman, or an elderly person, um, or a child. And, um, and, and there are no have-a-go heroes. No one intervenes. Um, and that's often, you know, um, uh, given as evidence that Western civilization is declining. People are no longer prepared to, you know, take a risk to defend the weak and the vulnerable from, you know, predatory men, violent men. Um, so yeah, and and the, the worrying thing about the prosecution of Jordan Neely is it'll make it it'll make people even more reluctant to intervene in future. Um, they'll see that you know there are the risks are even higher than they thought, and if if they accidentally end up killing someone, then they could face up to 15 years in jail and being demonized by prominent social justice activists in the national media. So yeah, I think it is really worrying. Um, I would hope that if um, you know my wife or one of my children was attacked in a public place and there were lots of bystanders witnessing what was going on, that you know one of them would have the courage to intervene and protect them. But I think episodes like this make that less likely yeah and there'd be the argument is there'd be fools to do it and i wish i could find it now there's a tweet that's been going around a lot and it's a woman basically having a go at men for sort of you know not defending women and saying you should stand up and defend them and blah blah and then there's another tweet where she's sort of condemning what penny did and people are pointing out saying look look, look what can you do this is the hypocrisy of it you know no one's going to defend you they'll say all day oh you should be standing up and defending defending vulnerable people defending women and then they'll say, you're going to prison for 15 years. So, yeah, what, what can you do? Another bit of hypocrisy is that one of the forms that DEI training takes is bystander training. People are told in workplaces um, by diversity trainers here and in America uh, that if they overhear someone using hurty words um, that's upset somebody else, they should call them out. They should report them. 
uh, that you have a duty as an ethical bystander to call out this kind of unacceptable behavior. Um, but, you know, why is it, why, why do we have a moral obligation to intervene and complain about somebody and try and get them fired if they use hurty words, but to stand back and do nothing if someone's actually being physically attacked? It's ludicrous, isn't it? Mm, very interesting. And I've actually managed to find the tweet. So Cernovich pointed this out, amongst others. These are, he says, these are the kind of jurors Subway hero Daniel Penny will have. Right, these people will be on the jury. Whatever white knight impulse you have, save it for your family. So the same women saying real men do something will convict your ass. So he takes this woman who is called Normal Audrey Horn as a Twitter handle. And she was saying in July 22, I feel visceral disgust towards men who deny any instinct to defend women. And then she says, you can defend yourself and others if necessary without literally murdering another person in the process. WTF is wrong with people on here. So because they all sort of exposed her. Because she said, visceral disgust if you don't have any instinct to defend. But if you do, by the way, you're going to jail for 15 years. So it's appalling. What are men supposed to do? And this is why I say it's an attack on the role of a man. A man has an inherent protective instinct. If he's a normal, functioning, healthy man, that's what he has, unless he's some sick freak. So that's what he does. And that's what men have to do. And if you rob men of that and say, you can't touch anyone now, you've got to stand back, let someone be assaulted, or you can go to jail for, for 15 years or worse, who knows? I mean, you can't have men anymore. You've robbed men of, of their agency and of their role, one of their roles in society. But of course we have police and we have rule of law and so on. But I don't know. What 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 are we supposed to do? Have you ever been a have-a-go hero? Um, that's a good question. I, I'm trying to remember. I've certainly been... So I've been in a fight where my mates... It's on the streets of Newcastle, Toby. So uh, on the streets of Newcastle, some uh, kid... So some kid comes up, gives us some hassle, and my mate tells him where to go, basically. He comes back with a, a, plank, a two by four plank of wood. And then, it, <laughs> and then, and so then we're thinking, maybe get out of here. Then some lads pull up and start helping my friend and telling the, the young lad to get lost. So then it all kicks off. But then, then, the, then the lad has his own reinforcement. So it kicks off into a full street fight, and they're all piling in. I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do here. And then the people that pulled up to help my friend decide to drive off. So it leaves my friend just being pummeled by a load of just, you know, youths. And so then I was like, I was asking people, come on, let's let's get involved. No one would. So I had to jump in, jumped into the pack, kicked one of them out of the way, threw one of them out of the way, got punched in the face myself, but created enough of a diversion because there were so many of them, like those little dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. There were so many of them and they were pummeling my friend in the corner. That I, all I did was create a diversion, got punched, lost my glasses. I think I had glasses. Um, and managed to do enough for us to get out of there. So I knew... Now, I don't know if what I do now in this strange world we have now, but in that moment, I was like, I proved to myself I was not a coward because, I mean, it was foolish when my friend got into the fight and he, and he had people backing him who he didn't know. But once they left, I was like, well, I'm going to have to get involved and try and get him out of there. So I found I wasn't a coward in that moment. But I, is that quite the same? I mean, that's a friend. That's not a sort of vulnerable woman or something, but I don't know. Mm. What about you? Yeah, I, I, I've, I've, a few a few incidents. I remember, I mean, once trying to break up a fight um, in a in a Portuguese nightclub, um, in which an English person was being attacked by two Portuguese men, an English man, um, and um, I have to say, it was it wasn't just you know, um, uh, no, it wasn't an entirely noble intervention. That was partly kind of uh, fueled by 
nationalism in that i thought he's 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 a brit i'm a brit can't have two people <laughs> picking on another brit got to help him out and uh, but i went in to try and break up the fight not to actually join in on his side and immediately got punched in the face with <laughs> my <laughs> my troubles and uh, actually one of my teeth was chipped which was bloody annoying um and that that has given me pause for thought before intervening in an attempt to break up fights since i have kind of you know i've stood beside people who are being kind of squared up to by you know groups of men um as if to say if, if you take him on you'll take me on too i did that actually with mark francois the tory spartan brexiteer we were in a pub and it was at the height of the kind of brexit brouhaha and um a couple of guys came up and started being quite aggressively rude to him. And it looked as though, you know, they, they wanted to actually s- t- take a swing at him. And I, I, I went up and stood beside him and uh, made it clear that, you know, um, uh, they'd have to take on both of us. And they did back down. Uh, and I was expecting Marc Francois to send me like a case of wine the next day. Um, uh, but nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good that you did it. especially like that really base nationalistic one that you did. But, um, yeah, you wonder now what you do. I mean, I'm proud that I did it because I found I was not a coward there by helping my friend. You know, I wasn't thrilled to get involved. It's like, you know, I was like, when he was involved with the other people, I was like, well, I'm not getting involved in that. It's his choice to get into this stupid fight. But once they abandoned him and he was against all the, these younger lads, it was just him getting beaten up in a corner. What could you actually do? I had to get involved and take a punch in the face myself. Luckily, they were kind of youths. So they were, you know, not at the level where they're going to probably kill you with a single punch. But it's, um, I did feel good about it. It's good when you survive something like that and you feel, you know, you feel you did the right thing. I think all, someone once, a comedian once said to me, to com- I can probably say it was comedian Tom Stade, who's like a Canadian kind of um, very exuberant comedian. You may have seen him on the telly. And he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, have you ever been in a fight? He's like, oh, good, yeah. Yeah, I don't trust someone who's not been in a fist fight or something like that. I think he's kind of right, isn't he? Yeah. These kids these days, Toby, they haven't even been in a single fight. Uh, I know. It's terrible. Um, we, did you watch that Miller Lite advert then, Toby? Yes, I thought that was um, that was quite extraordinary, wasn't it? Um, it seems like, you know, <laughs> Miller Lite saying to Bud Light, you've got into trouble for flirting with Dylan Mulvaney as an official partner. Uh, hold my beer. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that it was, it was, an, was it, was it a current ad? I mean, it, it, has it been made, you know, in the aftermath yeah. of Bud Light's kind of, uh, cataclysmic decline? Yeah. Um, I mean, it just seems, it's baffling, isn't it? It, 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 it and it, it, they make a great virtue out of, um, saying the word S-H-I-T and bleeping it out or asterixing it out when they put it up on the screen and it's all about women taking back control of the brewing process and women have always been brewers and they'll be brewers again and they've got to get rid of all this s-h-i-t such as women in bikinis used to sell beer that's uh, that's just insulting that's just s-h-i-t they're taking the bad s-h-i-t and replacing it with good s-h-i-t it's just it was sort of baffling but kind of uh, sort of woke obviously woke but also slightly off key in a in a kind of rather bizarre way what did you think? yeah it was terrible and mental and crazy i said um boycott miller light and possibly women um <laughs> that's my stance on that because yeah like you say it's, it's so stupid what they've done and and also i believe their parent company is the, is the same as cause light which is particularly stupid because cause light were winning this you know there was that country singer that replaced bud light with cause light but I think it's all Molson cause 
And so it's like, what are you doing? You've now lost your advantage. Seems absolutely crazy. Maybe it was planned before the Dylan Mulvaney thing. It was pure sort of, it was more Gillette than Dylan Mulvaney, but in the, in the, since it's a beer and it's in the wake of the Dylan Mulvaney thing, it's an incredibly stupid thing to do. Well, and, uh, maybe, maybe the, maybe the explanation, Nick, is that, um, the reason Bud Light has, um, sales of Bud Light have declined so dramatically since the Dylan Mulvaney episode is because lots of women, who bought Bud Light? I think you know quite a few of the customers for light beer, which is low calories after all, are women. Um, uh, maybe maybe they were put off by the association between Bud Light and Dylan Mulvaney. So maybe this is a way of saying switch to Miller Light because we respect women. Mm. Uh, we respect real women, not fake women. Could be. Uh, so maybe that was maybe that was the sales pitch. They were trying to pick up those disillusioned, gender critical feminists who were drinking Bud Light. Yeah, maybe, it seems unlikely because yeah, because of the tone of the advert is so clearly anti men. It's very pro women, but it, it's it's not pro women at the expense of tra- trans people. It's it's pro women clearly at the expense of men, and it basically implies that or it says that women invented brewing itself pretty much as far as like, as far as i remember it's basically like we invented brewing we invented beer i'm paraphrasing and then it's like and what did they do they put us in bikinis and it's like yeah yeah because men put women in bikinis women had no agency at all there's no such thing as beautiful women using their looks to get ahead as, a, as, a, as an advantage that's just never happened in life they were all put in bikinis toby to this day i see them on instagram being put in bikinis by men every day it's a really absurd <laughs> argument and actually quite anti-feminist as i've always said the darts girls famously we were banned wanted to do that job Lelani said she wanted to be a grid girl some women are blessed with good looks some men are blessed with good looks you that you can then use that as an asset in your life as completely fine and normal you know like i use my incredible intelligence and humor and uh, and and, and toby uses his, his work ethic but you know <laughs> we've all got assets and it's what what's wrong with a woman in a bikini if that's what she wants to do i mean i hate to sound like a a lib here maybe i'm not sounding like a trad con but i just think that's a pathetic argument they put women in bikinis yeah and it was sort of celebrating female agency because after all women had invented beer um and they were reinventing it now that they'd been liberated from the bad old days in which as you say they were put in bikinis it's as though agency deserted them for kind of uh 50 to 100 years but now they've recovered it yeah it was it was an odd narrative all right well i think that's most of our american stories but you want to do another occasional section which is bird watch so i thought we'd do a bird watch because just after our last show was released tucker carlson came out with this very interesting video announcing that he'd be doing his show pretty much on twitter although musk later said he hasn't particularly given him a contract or anything it's just that he's he's just must uh, tucker just seems to be doing it on twitter and, and so Tucker came out with this clip. He already had that massively viral clip, but he had another clip. And he talks about the media lying by omission. He says, facts have been withheld on purpose. Along, with, I've already actually, like, it'll get too annoying because I sometimes do my Tucker. Really. No, no, it's very good. Carry on with Tucker. <laughs> he goes, um, I can't always do it. He says, facts have been withheld on purpose along with proportion and perspective. You are being manipulated. The best you can hope for in the news business at this point is the freedom to tell the fullest truth that you can but there are always limits. And you know that if you bump up against those limits often enough, you will be fired for it. That's not a guess. It's guaranteed. Uh, every person who works in English language media understands that the rule of what you can't say defines everything. And he goes on to say why he likes Twitter. He says that everybody's allowed here and we think that's a, and we think that's a good thing. But of course, not everyone's allowed here because we can get into that. Some people are banned. But he says, 
all the news you see, now this is a very interesting point. He said that all the news you see analyzed on Twitter comes from media organizations who are, quote, thinly disguised propaganda outlets. So he's talking about wanting to change the whole conversation. He's saying it's great that Twitter is free speech, or I would say relatively free speech, but the whole parameters of the debate are set by cable news and by these same media organizations. So they say something on the TV or in the papers, and we all discuss it on Twitter. And he's saying that even within that, they're leaving out all the key points. I would say already that probably gets discussed on Twitter, the fact that, oh, they've left this out. That's probably already what Twitter does. But it's interesting to see how he tackles that. The thing, what he brings into, he, he said in his first video, didn't he, here are some of the topics that are never discussed. And he listed a load of things like demographic change and natural resources. And he had all these topics that are always left out. So I guess he's saying, in my show on Twitter, I will bring in these topics that are left out of the debate entirely. Mm. Yes. I mean, I, I thought that um, his description of what the content of his show is going to be was less interesting than the fact that he's decided to do his new show on Twitter and not because he's been paid to by Elon Musk, just because he thinks that now with, you know, um, if you are a Twitter blue tick holder, um, you can post videos longer than two minutes and 20 seconds. So that creates an opportunity to turn Twitter into something more like YouTube. Um, And it's preferable to YouTube because presumably there'll be less censorship on Twitter, even with the new CEO in post who we can discuss in a minute. Um, And I think that's a really interesting idea. Um, But how how is he going to monetize um, the new show? Did you get a sense of that? I mean, are are you going to be able to kind of include a donation box on Twitter or insert ads into the shows you upload to Twitter and your advertisers will pay you to do that? Well, there's the subscribe button, isn't there? The new sort of, whatever he's calling it, super follow, it was called, it may may change. And I've applied for this, but I'm not sure how it's going to work. A lot of people's applications are pending, but there's a new subscribe feature where you can pay people, a bit like Substack or something, you can pay them for extra content on Twitter. So it might be that. I think Musk also said he was going to bring in an advertising revenue share, much like YouTube as well. So people will know more than me because I've not actually checked that recently. But those are the two things I know about. So, yeah, he'll be finding ways to monetize. So presumably if you've got a massive show, Tucker Carlson, you get millions of hits, you'll get a share from that. And that's going to make you a lot of money on Twitter. I think that's the idea. And Musk, I think, is going to bring back live streaming as well on Twitter. I think he's going to just try and bring back everything that any app does like YouTube or Instagram and just be the best video app is what I think he's going to try and do. And certainly massively right. incentivized to do it if, if, if um, Tucker's going to be on there. But yeah, loads of people were saying, hey, give me a contract, Musk. And then he came out and said, no, these, these aren't actually contracts. It's just, you know, people choosing to do it. Right. But with YouTube right. censorship, and if he can monetize it correctly, I think this could be a huge thing. It's, the only yeah. problem I've yeah, found is we- when you put your shows on there, people try and get you sued. <laughs> feel like people went through my Andrew Bridgen interview with a fine tooth comb thinking, oh, is this liableless? And and so the thing is, it immediately got more views than it would get on YouTube for me at this stage. It immediately got like 12,000. But then I was like, oh, do I have to take this down now? So the problem I found with Twitter, you know, your audience will go to your YouTube or your audio podcast, but any scumbag on Twitter can just look at your show. So I've right. considered uploading my podcast episodes onto Twitter, but yeah, I'm a bit worried about it. Yeah, maybe maybe we should put our show. Maybe we should put our show on, on Twitter. Um I've noticed that um, things are getting many more hits 
on Twitter than they typically would on YouTube. I mean, maybe their counters, you know, aren't particularly reliable. And there seem to be two counters. I think you've commented on before, um, uh, one showing a substantially higher number than another. But nonetheless, you know, um, uh, it seems to be you're reaching a bigger audience via Twitter than you would via YouTube. Yeah, I do think there's something in that. Someone explained those two numbers the other day, but I've immediately f- forgotten it. <laughs> they, 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 they're two slightly different metrics, but I can't remember what. But yeah, you, you, people can accrue massive views on Twitter. Maybe that is a future for video. Matt Walsh has put a show on there. Like I say, the only problem is that Matthew Sweet can access your shows. But um, So that was, uh, that was Tucker. Yeah, let's go on to the CEO. So this was huge news. L- Linda Yaccarino confirmed as new Twitter CEO replacing billionaire Elon. That was from the Mirror because we happen to do this on Headliner, so I've got the story here with me. She's worked at NBC Universal for nearly 12 years. Doesn't augur well to me particularly, but you can see why Elon's gone for her because she generated more than 100 billion in ad sales since 2011, her company bio notes. So clearly in there to restore advertisers' faith in Twitter, as it says here in the piece. And the danger of her, though, is that she, as many pointed out, was a former executive chair, I believe the position was, at the WEF. I don't really understand any of their positions. They're all nonsense anyway. But she was a, she was fully WEF at one point. And she also had a video out saying uh, mask up or pack up, which I found very disturbing, a sort of weird piece of pro-mask propaganda. So I was worried about that. Other people pointed out, well, she is following lots of sort of conservative people like Tucker and so on. Then other people said, well, that doesn't mean anything. Now, Musk has made mistakes before when he like trusted Yoel Roth, for example, who proved to be a bad mistake. You know, is this, Toby, going to be a John Scully moment when Steve Jobs brought in John Scully from Pepsi and he ousted him from Apple, you know? And can you really have a free speech platform that's totally based like Musk wants to be, the meme Lord Musk, and at the same time have a kind of corporate person there who's Hollywood person, who's an NBC person, sort of restoring advertisers' faith? Can those two really exist together? Yeah, I mean, do you think it means that Musk has had a bit of a rethink that initially his strategy for turning Twitter into the digital town square was to wean it off its dependency on advertisers because, you know, they're the ones responsible for censoring platforms like YouTube or the reason why YouTube is so prissy about content moderation because it doesn't want to antagonize any advertisers because that's its main source of revenue. Ditto, it seemed to make sense for um, Musk to try and move away from advertiser dependence towards a subscription model more like Netflix, which is one of the reasons I think Netflix has a greater tolerance for free speech than advertiser-supported channels. Um, So is it that he's actually abandoning that strategy because he just hasn't sold enough Twitter blue ticks to make that viable. And if he's going to make Twitter work, he needs to persuade people like Tucker that they can also sell ads in the shows that they put on Twitter to make it worthwhile. Um, uh, So to me, it suggests that there has been a kind of shift in Elon Musk's thinking about the future of the platform, which probably isn't great because um, even if, you know, uh, she is fairly um, uh, permissive, um, and has a high tolerance for conservative dissidents, which she may well do. Um, and even if these links with the WEF have been wildly exaggerated or are pretty meaningless, which I suspect they are, um, nonetheless, if, if Twitter is now moving back from 
a subscription model towards an advertiser-funded business, then that will inevitably mean less free speech on the platform. There may be some truth in the fact that he's recognised that blue ticks aren't going to do that well because that strategy has been a bit odd. But I do think he was probably always looking for advertising revenue. He was certainly has been looking for it and he's been in trouble with these big weird firms behind advertising companies that kind of advise them. And I'm, I know they would try to lean on him and, and say, well, you have, to, you have to do this and this. And then he's fallen out with them and they've you know abandoned Twitter. But I, so I think he's always probably been trying to get advertising revenue. And he's always been trying to do subscription. I think he's probably always wanted to do both. And he has said from the start, he'll appoint another CEO when he finds someone stupid enough to want to do it. Uh, but yeah, but I, but I do also agree that perhaps in recent months or weeks that the the uh, the balance may have shifted more towards, okay, this blue tick thing really isn't working and, and, and even more emphasis on the adverts. But I do think he's always been trying to get advertising, but without compromising himself too much, which has been the impossible thing. I can't remember what those companies are called, but there's these weird companies behind who work with like multiple massive companies like Coca-Cola yeah. and other ones, and they sort of advise them, they're kind of newsguard type companies. But you know, they just, I don't know what their name, they're sort of shadowy agencies that advise advertisers about brand safety. Yeah, I think, well, I think that there, there, are the, there are the kind of ratings agencies like NewsGuard. Um, and I think NewsGuard advise the ad sales agencies who are sort of like intermediaries between companies um, who want to advertise and platforms like Twitter who kind of advise the company, purchase space, try and negotiate the best price for them. Um, but yeah, um, uh, they're all um, very conservative in the wrong sense of the word. Um, they want the environment to be as safe as possible for big corporate products to be advertised on no risk of contamination by unacceptable views on the COVID vaccines or the war in Ukraine um, or climate change. Um, did you see there was a piece in The Observer um, at the weekend uh, saying that various um, climate scientists and meteorologists um, uh, were now being hated on much more on Twitter than they were before Musk bought the company, that they used to be these various safeguards in place, that um, their tweets were promoted, uh, the tweets of climate contrarians like me were demoted, um, and they were protected from hate speech, you know, by safety officers. Uh, but now that Trump's fired them all, they're just having to cope with this kind of tsunami of hate from people who think climate change is a hoax. I didn't really buy it. And often, you know, when they use words like hate, they just mean, you know, robustly expressed criticism, um, <laughs> which uh, which they're not used to. Um, but uh, yeah, there is this kind of narrative that um, Twitter is not a safe place to advertise because it's, um, it's become a kind of hate-filled Wild West. The phrase Wild West was even used by one of these climate scientists in, um, in the Observer. Uh, and clearly, it looks as though, you know, Trump is trying to address that for, you know, for, for revenue generating purposes. Yeah, Musk. Sorry, he said yeah. uh, Trump a couple of times, but I don't think he's involved at that level. He's he's, he's still on Truth Social, great platform. But yeah, no, it, I haven't seen that specifically. But I've seen you know it reminds me very much of the Mariana Spring kind of you know oh it's so much hate on Musk Twitter kind of angle that you know they all go for complete nonsense. Shall I quickly do our second ad, Toby? Yeah, why don't you? So this comes from our good friend Thor, and Thor says the adventure and freedom of Thor's Scottish Island upbringing bleeds into who he is now. As advisor, coach, and enterprise partner, Little Thor's world was the island. Total freedom. Freedom to climb cliffs, shoot guns, ride motorbikes, sail and boat through caves to fish. 
perched on rough wooden benches around the croft house table, paraffin tilly lamp hissing overhead, elbows out with his brothers like little Vikings at feast, ready to rip into home-reared meat and no-holds-barred debate. Now approaching 50 years on the planet, Thor remains committed to freedom and adventure. He's awake to the world's darker truths, but stays in tune with commercial reality. He's no flat earther, but if you are, he'll hear you out. Thor would welcome free-thinking, skeptical new connections and potential venture partners at linkedin.com slash in slash Thorholt and thorholt.substack.com because your profits beat their inflation, pillage wages, or meager universal basic income paid via central bank digital currency. Connect today at linkedin.com slash in slash Thorholt. Given the amount I've drank over the last few days, I read that okay, but it should have said inflation pillage should have had a hyphen. So I don't think that was really my fault. But that's good old Thor. So go and connect with Thor at linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. And Thor does everything. And it's very hard to explain what he does because he does basically everything. So, But I do recommend getting in touch with him. And also forthcoming episode of my current thing podcast. Got a little bit delayed because other people wanted their episodes released first. But, and they were more topical. But the Thor one's coming out very soon. All right. Now let's go over to Will with our top stories of the week. All right, I'm here with Will Jones, editor of The Daily Skeptic, with our top stories of the week. And firstly, we have this. The federal government has relentlessly forced a premature, unsafe vaccine into the arms of the American people. And this comes from the Florida Surgeon General, Will. Yeah, incredible story. This this is Dr. Joseph A. Ladepo, and he is, uh, the, he is the Florida Surgeon General, as you say, and he's written a blistering new letter to the FDA and the CDC. They're the American agencies responsible for medicine regulation and safety and approvals and he has absolutely eviscerated them for their failures on the covid vaccines he's written to them before and uh, they replied with what he described was a word salad of pandering and gaslighting and so this is his response he tweeted here's my response let's try again and it's an, it's an, and it's an incredible letter nick he he goes through in a really short space of time goes through so many issues that they haven't that they haven't addressed he lists uh, 12 questions things that they need to put into the public domain questions they need to answer things they need to comment on the 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 adverse events uh, in the in fda's own safety surveillance system why weren't they published uh, in time uh, he asked them to comment on the studies in Thailand that show a 3% incidence of heart injury in young boys and a Swiss study that shows uh, the same thing in adults um, after the bivalent booster. Uh, these are really uh, major uh, results, findings that have just not been commented on at all, let alone incorporated uh, by the FDA into its recommendations for the vaccines. And he really lays uh, really lays into them. He asks them, he says the data are unequivocal. There's a 1,700% uh, reporting increase, and including a 4,400% increase in life-threatening conditions, that's reports uh, for the COVID vaccines compared to other vaccines uh, in, since they were released in, 20, in late 2020, 2021. So what you have to remember when you're reading this is this isn't just uh, some some blogger on the internet. This isn't just, uh, or, or even you know, some scientist, some dissident scientist who's writing something um, on a website or um, or in a magazine. This is a, a state surgeon general writing to the federal government of America, saying, "What are you doing? Why are you not answering these questions? Are you really being transparent?" And challenging them and telling them to to pull the finger out and do something about this and stop ignoring the adverse 
safety signals about these vaccines. All right. Well, all right, I can't actually contribute that much this week, Will, because I've been out partying three nights in a row. So you're going to have to forgive me for not being able to grasp all the technical detail. I'm completely useless. Um, let's just move on and do this uh, Eco Health Alliance given 2.9 million for new bat virus research. What's this all about? So this is the Eco Health Alliance, the notorious organisation that has been found to be uh, doing research into bat viruses. It's widely believed uh, to be uh, well, it, it is linked to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It's a way um, it appears of uh, funding and research being done uh, via f- funded by America, gain of function type research, but being done in in China and not according to the American rules and restrictions widely considered uh, by many to be uh, linked to and uh, possibly responsible for the creation um, of and the research that led to the development of, uh, we assume inadvertently, uh, COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And there's been a big push for this, obviously, this research not to happen, to stop the dangerous research. Why are we making viruses worse? Why are we giving them abilities uh, that they don't have in nature? Why are we making them more able to infect uh, humans? And um, and so we thought that that would be the outcome was that they would these things or we hoped I should say these that would be the outcome these things would stop. But instead, what we have here is the U.S. government making a new award of two point nine million dollars to the Eco Health Alliance to uh, to do more research on bat viruses. This grant does come with more restrictions than almost any other grant in history. It's, it appears uh, that's what the scientists who have received it have said. They said they've, they've never seen a grant with so many uh, restrictions. It has restrictions on doing any work in China. There's a ban on that and on doing anything resembling gain of function. So so that, that's that's obviously their, their way of appearing to be addressing the concerns, the serious concerns of a lot of people, a lot of uh, people in um, American Congress um, in particular. So they, they do seem to be trying to address the concerns, but Will they not find a way of getting around uh, those restrictions? Do we really want them doing this this research at all? Are these really the people to be doing it? That's the question. Matt Ridley, uh, the co-author of Viral, the search for the origin of COVID-19, uh, who's been looking in great detail and raising alarm about uh, the the role, the possible role of American and Chinese research in the producing uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, said that rather than qu- quietly tiptoeing away from such research, it would be better if governments got together and agreed a policy. He says it's no good just saying in the case of one fundee, please don't go virus hunting and fiddle with the genes of potentially pandemic pathogens in live form. He says we should have ex- an explicit policy and he challenges the British government, our own government, of what what is it doing about this? This is the question. Um, it's no good just uh, keep giving them money uh, and uh, with these these little restrictions on it. We need some proper assessment of the risks of this and, and really just a stop to anything that's, that's, that's risky and dangerous. Yeah, we cover this on Headliners. I, I remember thinking it was a bit like the big short, that movie where at the end, none of the bankers actually got punished and then they started doing similar things all over again. I was like, hang on, aren't these the guys behind the fight? Why, why, why are they doing it again? But like you say, with the caveat that, oh, please don't do gain of function. I guess it's not proven. That's what they'd say. But you know, there's a lot of lot of suspicion. And and even if and even if they they, they didn't, or it can't be proven, uh, it was a cl- it was a clear potential. It was a clear risk. It's exactly the kind of thing that could 
um, have happened and would eventually happen. So, um, so it, these things just need to be, these lessons need to be learned, don't they? Absolutely. Let's move on and do this one. Fresh blow to net zero as British Gas refuses to install heat pumps in millions of homes because they don't work. Who knew? Incredible story, this. Yeah, British British Gas, hardly a company that you would necessarily expect to be uh, to be uh, climate sceptical, or maybe you would. I mean, they are British Gas, but everyone's supposed to be on board with uh, net zero these days. Uh, but British Gas throwing a spanner into the works of the government's net zero ambitions by uh, making a statement uh, this week that it will refuse to install heat pumps in millions of homes where they deem that it will not make it warm, warm enough, where basically they won't work. And uh, Ross Clark has written about this in the Telegraph, and he says that uh, that they're going to they're going to make a test uh, uh, of the heat pumps, and if it fails that test, then they will refund the money. British Gas will, and they won't, and they won't install. Then they'll refuse to install the prop, uh, install the the pump. Um, and he points out that uh, that's that's fair enough, obviously, but it will mean that millions of homes uh, can't have a heat pump installed by British Gas because there are eight million homes in Britain which have solid walls and which, as a result, are hard to bring up to required insulation standards at a reasonable cost. And that is an understatement of the issue. It's all very well uh, heat pumps, perhaps working uh, pretty well. Uh, some people say that they're great. Um, uh, so 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 who so who knows? But so it's all very well. It's it's one thing to uh, to install a heat pump in a new build home designed for the purpose with modern walls, modern insulation. Uh, to uh, and and for that that that's one thing. It's quite another to expect a heat pump to work in an old building without uh, in an old build house uh, without proper insulation, without mod- modern insulation. Uh, they they as British Gas says they don't work. They don't work in that context. They don't get the the air temperature and the room temperature up to a safe, uh, comfortable level. And 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 it and good on British Gas for standing up in the current climate where this is. This kind of thing is where being skeptical of anything to net zero is not really acceptable, um, and saying actually no, uh, we're not going to do this. So, and the government need to think again, really, don't they? Yeah, even I know heat pumps don't work, and I barely even follow this stuff. So it's yeah, ridiculous. But at some point, net zero has got to come into collision course with reality. It looks like it might be starting to happen. Let's hope. Should we do this one? Entire global food supply at risk from disastrous response to so-called nitrogen crisis. Yeah, so this is the nitrogen crisis again. We've spoken about this a few times. This is what the Dutch farmers' uh, situation is linked to. That the, uh, if you if you recall, this is the amazing election results uh, where the Dutch farmers' part startup party uh, managed to uh, win, could become the largest party in the in the local and uh, Senate elections in uh, in. Uh, the, the Netherlands, and um, this, uh, and that's that was that's that's linked to this because the, uh, the the reason why they are why the Dutch why the Dutch farmers are not happy is because their farms are being threatened to be taken over off them, and the reason for that is uh, said to be by the government uh, based on EU uh, regulations that they are producing too much nitrogen emissions. There is a nitrogen crisis. It's linked to fertilizer, mainly nitrous oxides. 
Um, and we and it wasn't clear to me, which I'd mentioned before on uh, previous episodes, Nick. It wasn't clear to me that what what the reason was for the for the nitrogen issue. What what was the problem with nitrogen? We we looked at a an article recently, uh, Nick, that um, where it was it seemed to be a, was it about where th- causing plants to grow in the wrong places and die in the wrong places? You know, was that was that what it was? Was it, what is it about? Well, Chris Morrison, our environment editor, has has written about uh, this nitrogen crisis in more detail. He's drawn on the work of uh, some theoretical physicists, um, some four distinguished scientists who've been who've been looking at this this issue and what's and what's going on. So so it so it turns out that it's not just about plants growing and dying in the wrong places. That the the the, the one of the main issues that they don't like about about nitrogen is that it is considered to be this won't surprise you. A global, a, a greenhouse gas. Can think of the term there. A greenhouse gas. So they, so just like carbon dioxide, it is thought to contribute uh, to global warming. Okay, so it's not just carbon dioxide that we're, that we're fighting now. It's nitrogen, nit- nitrous oxides. However, uh, these physicists, uh, Chris says, have done uh, done scientific work on this, and they have found that the contribution that the entire globe, the contribution that these nitrogen emissions, these nitrous oxide emissions make is an almost unmeasurable 0.064 degrees centigrade per century. 0.064 degrees centigrade per century is what the, is, is the contribution that these nitrous oxides globally are said to make to are said to make to global warming, uh, and that's that's on their own modelling. That's on the modelling that the that the that the IPCC and the cli- and the climate scientists themselves are doing. And we're putting the entire what Chris says we're putting the entire global food supply um, in danger of being of being trashed uh, and destroying farm uh, small and medium sized farms and their livelihoods uh, for the sake of this of this really really minuscule. Uh, effect uh, even on their own calculations, um, and that's assuming that these—that's even assuming these calculations are, um, are correct and these estimates of what causes and drives uh, global warming, the recent warming period uh, that we had in the last fifty years. Uh, what's what's really driving that? And that's assuming that's correct. So, so even nuttier than carbon dioxide, even on their own calculations. So totally, totally mad. And you, and in a way, it's one of those stories that you can't quite believe. You can't quite believe that. That there's governments, the EU and the, and the Netherlands, and and we saw that uh, possibly in the UK soon as well that they really are taking these drastic actions, completely undermining whole sectors of the economy, and and even potentially threatening the whole global food supply because of this of this war on fertilisers. We saw this in Sri Lanka as well, um, where they tried to get rid of all art, all these modern fertilisers. Uh, in favour of of organic farming, and it just and it causes and, and in Sri Lanka it caused caused disaster, um, and and it will do elsewhere as well. And it it, ba- it boggles the mind that it's for such even on their own calculations such a minuscule supposed benefit. Unbelievable! It just shows the madness that we're living in, um, and you can see why people start to think there's some other some other agenda going on behind that they can't really really be the reason that they're doing it. Um, but Nick, I I actually think that. My own view, I think, is that is that is that they are just quite mad, um, 
And I'm sure there are lots of sinister agendas going on and ulterior agendas and people wanting to profit from this. But I also think there is a lot of groupthink um, and just a, a lot of green craziness. Yeah, well, theoretical physics isn't my strong suit, but as you say, the attack on farming and so on just, just does seem absolutely crazy to any any sane person. So, um, all right, well, thanks for those, Will. Some good stories there, and no doubt we'll catch up with you again next week. Great, thanks, Nick. So that was Will. Toby, do you want to quickly do our third ad? Yeah, our third ad, which is from the stack assistant at pm.me. So... Bitcoin is a scam. Too hard or just dead, they say. Yet it passed PayPal's transaction volume two years ago. Last year, it beat MasterCard with trillions of dollars moved. And this year, it will top Visa. Adoption is accelerating, led by high inflation zones like Nigeria, Turkey and Argentina. Savvy Switzerland sells Bitcoin with train tickets and Austria with stamps. Small states like El Salvador and Bhutan are openly stacking and Bitcoin has risen to 20th in the world's currencies by value. Now the big boys are coming. Russia is stacking, while the US is sitting on a 200,000 Bitcoin haul. China's last ban displaced a third of the world's Bitcoin miners, yet a fifth still remain. Either their ban failed like all the rest, or China is stacking hard too. The only winning move is to play. Skeptical? At the Stack Assistant, we offer free advice, help stacking your first sats, as the subunits of Bitcoin are called, and moving your stack into secure self-custody. Email us on thestackassistant, all one word, at pm.me. That's thestackassistant, all one word, at pm.me. All right, three adverts, not bad. Um, Now let's move on and do everyone's favorite section. It's Peak Woke. So, Toby, how many peak wokes do you have this week? I think I've got two peak wokes. Okay. Um, uh, unless, we're, unless we have an overlap. Um, well, maybe I should go first then because I've got, I think, four. But my first one is this clip from the Transformers. Did you see this? There, a Transformer was advocating non-binary and was talking to a, a child in this animated series about pronouns. Did you see that? <laughs> I haven't seen that, but it sounds uh, all too predictable. It's very, very weird and creepy. And that was definitely peak woke tra- woke Transformers. Uh, I had some joke about it. But I can't remember what it was. I mean, obviously, there's a trans joke in there somewhere, but I've made that joke before. <laughs> but um, yeah, robots in disguise. I suppose there's something a bit a bit groomy about that. But um, I can't remember what my joke is. But uh, never mind. And there was this... Uh, I'll do one more. There was this California community college history professor suspended, banned from non-public spaces on campus and denied access to his email for serious misconduct. And this was following giving out Jeremy's chocolate, you know, the Daily Wire's brand of chocolate. And the problem with this was that it was was thought to sort of uh, assert the gender binary because the chocolate (laughs) is divided into his and hers, which is sort of why they launched that chocolate. I think because I think it was Hershey's, wasn't it? We're we're doing a sort of trans woke ad or some sort of woke ad. So... This guy, David Richardson, a self-described gay conservative, stocked a bowl of candy. This is American, so sorry, guys. With Jeremy's he, him, she, her chocolate bars. I remember they say, yeah, but one of them has nuts. And if, if, you, if you, we need to tell you, if you need us to tell you which one, then stick with Hershey's. So, yeah, he had these uh, chocolate bars that, that was seen as an endorsement of the gender binary. And so was suspended for it or some sort of weird semi-suspension, as I just described. 
Uh, yeah, that's pretty shocking. Um, yeah, I can't see Michael Bay, the Hollywood director, making a hundred billion dollar, hundred million dollar plus movie about um, trans transformers, um, <laughs> unless some studio out there just wants to go bust. Um, so I've got. Uh, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but um, calling criminals convicts has now been deemed offensive. Um, so um, woke bureaucrats in the Ministry of Justice have decreed that criminals must no longer be called convicts because that's offensive. The right way to describe them is persons of lived experience. And that's even if their lived experience involves everything from armed robbery to murder. So, yeah, that, that was um, quite extraordinary. It just seems like uh, almost a parody of woke language policing, doesn't it? You've now got to refer to um, uh, convicts as persons of lived experience you also can't refer to former convicts as ex-cons that's uh, deeply insulting as well yeah um, so we did the piece on headliners and uh, it said you had to f- the, the term they didn't like as well was prison leavers and i said yeah of course they're going to be hated by prison remainers but also they yeah this idea of person of lived experience that's everyone everyone that covers everyone doesn't it the only sort of sane point in the article was that if people who are on remand shouldn't be called comets because they're not actually been convicted. But other than that, it was pure Pete work. And the other story I just wanted to highlight was, um, I don't know if you saw this one, but um, the um, Cambridge Women's Reserve Boat Crew in 2015 included um, someone called Sarah Gibson, a trans woman. And um, this has been heralded as a victory for equality. Um, the fact that uh, a place in the Cambridge University women's reserve crew uh, was taken by a biological male. I'm not sure that the woman who missed out on that place uh, saw it as a victory for equality. Um, But uh, yeah, it's it's odd. And Sarah Gibson was featured in a brochure published in 2018 by Stonewall. But for some reason, this story has only just come to light. And as you can imagine, there is a certain amount of pushback from unhappy women. All right. Well, there's still two more. I mean, there's so many bad ones this week. This Christian teacher who was uh, urged to talk about his beliefs on marriage was then sacked the next day for hate speech, Ben Dabowski. So he was on an unconscious bias training course for teachers. And, um, and they were all supposed to sort of give their views which he did. And he said things like marriage was between a man and a woman. Life begins at conception. He was opposed to some aspects of Sharia law, such as the stoning of men for homosexuality. How dare you be opposed to that? Next morning, he said he was summoned before the headmaster and ejected from the uh, is it Bishop of Landleft Church in Wales School near Cardiff. So, yeah, he was ejected for, even though the head privately said that he agreed with lots of his views. So it was just kind of, he was sort of tricked by this course into you know let's all say our views here and then he then he was sacked for it and the other one i had is another teacher which is uh the story's been going on for a while but this was another part to it sack teacher could face lifelong ban after refusing to use eight-year-old's pronoun this was this christian teacher who wouldn't use an eight-year-old's pronoun is now now told they might be they might be banned forever did you see this one toby yeah no, that was that's pretty extraordinary uh, did, did you see that there was a Civitas report um, produced by someone called Joanne Nadler, and it got quite a lot of publicity um, uh, in, in Monday's papers. But, but the kind of headline finding in this report is that 
of 16 to 18-year-olds in, I think, Britain's schools are either transitioning um, or thinking about transitioning. Um, so that was pretty extraordinary, but perhaps not surprising given the um, aggressive enforcement of um, gender uh, identity ideology uh, in schools. Um, pretty shocking. I mean, in many respects, schools are just becoming woke madrasas, aren't they? Um, yeah. The church of woke has, uh, you know, has, has made inroads into schools up and down the country. There is no separation between the woke church and the state when it comes to schools. And it isn't just state schools, of course. It's actually worse, I think, in, in independent schools. So, yeah, pretty shocking. Yeah, and, and she's the reason she's potentially facing a lifetime ban is she shared information about the child with her lawyers as preparation for a judicial review. And so the school reported to the Teaching Regulation Agency. But she is on, uh, suing them for unfair dismissal and religious discrimination because of her Christian beliefs. And it is basically, as we know, Pretty much illegal to be a Christian at this point in this country. All right, well, that was peak woke. I think they were all pretty peak woke. Not much weak poke this week. I think they were all pretty bad ones. Um, quick note, perhaps, pretty much the end of the show, but should we quickly say there's 16 slash 14, depending on website glitches, uh, tickets left for the Weekly Skeptic Live? Yes. I've barely been promoting it because of the sort of uh, chaos around your other event, but it is the Weekly Skeptic Live this Saturday. I've been to too many parties so what i've got to do is recover over the next couple of days which i will put together an amazing show for the week of skeptic live at the emmanuel center does it start at seven toby it's i think doors open at seven officially starts at seven thirty, goes on till nine thirty, and then those who bought drinks tickets will join us for a drink at a nearby venue afterwards but yeah it's um there are still some tickets left you can buy them on eventbrite.co.uk um just search for weekly skeptic live um, and it's at the Emmanuel Center this Saturday. Um, and uh, we think, I mean, it could actually sell out, which is fantastic. Yeah, and it's close to selling out, even with our very haphazard promotion. And actually, we've got to hope quite a lot of things happen in the next few days because uh, we haven't held anything back. We've put all the interesting stories in this one. So what have we got? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We've got, we, we've got quite a lot's got to happen. But of course, yeah. the show will be a bit different anyway. We'll have more of a banter element. It won't be pure hard news that we normally do so it'll be a mixture yep. of news and and bants and it'll be a lot of fun so make sure you come to that at the emmanuel center 16 tickets left get on it now and um yeah and all, all the vip ones are gone but i don't know do we, do we have one vip one pop-up or did we decide what to do with that uh yeah I, I think maybe there is one vip drinks tickets left if someone's uh, very sharp they can get onto that and someone says here i allow myself time to listen to the weekly skeptic whilst weeding the garden a really enjoyable podcast, and the garden is immaculate thanks to some of the epic episodes. The fact that some twaddle with Alistair Campbell is counted the top political podcast is an extreme injustice to the Weekly Skeptic, which is far superior. Nick is a master of the medium, and Toby is good too. I forgot it had that bit on the end. <laughs> I'm sorry, Toby. I forgot it had that bit at the end. Um, and that's, oh, here's one I haven't even read, so I'll just read this live. It says, this is the one, harking back to the Stone Roses there. My very favorite listen. I look forward to every episode and haven't had a dud yet. Nick and Toby are both amusing, entertaining, and informative. Highly recommended. Well, there you go. And we've got That's someone awesome. else who says they're Team Joby. A pacey, good-natured conversation between three men on the spectrum. Representation matters. That was, uh, <laughs> who's the most on the spectrum? Write in. Don't write in about that. But um, I, I actually don't think it's me. But, um, but um, oh, let's just read one more because this actually came from ChatGPT. So it says, my highlight of the week 
The Weekly Skeptic with Nick Dixon and Toby Young is a beacon of intellectual rigor in the podcasting landscape. It is a platform that invites you to challenge your own beliefs, engage in critical thinking, and explore the complex tapestry of ideas that shape our world. With its exceptional hosts, diverse range of topics, meticulous research, and engaging style, this podcast is a must-listen for anyone seeking intellectual stimulation and a deeper understanding of the issues that define our times. The Weekly Skeptic has become the highlight of my week, eagerly anticipated, and never failing to deliver insightful and captivating discussions. I got ChatGPT to write this review because I couldn't be bothered, but great show, guys. Longer <laughs> than I thought it was going to be, but that's our first AI bot review. Yeah, who knew AIs had such good taste? And it's very surprising, Toby, because as you pointed out, when you asked ChatGPT to write something in the style of Toby Young, it wouldn't do it because he's a known hate figure. Yeah, that's right. Everything I say is too offensive. <laughs> All right, well... Another fairly epic episode, so hope you enjoyed it. Hope to see you on the 20th on Saturday at Weekly Skeptic Live. And if, you, if you're for some stupid reason not coming to that, we'll see you again on the podcast next week. But until then, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.